one of the things about entrepreneurship, there is no reward without the risk. Every great entrepreneur had help. And where is that help going to come from? It's going to come from that social network. You don't have to be smarter than everybody else to make money doing asset allocation and save. I think there's a danger when you're in business to find arrogance, and especially if you're doing really well. At the end of the day, I ain't nothing special. I'm just a guy. What has value? Well, what has value is whatever people say has value. I'm going to get better and better and better at what I do as I get older. So the best me is going to be the me right before I die. Marketplace family, how's everyone doing? I'm your host, Priest Willis, and on today's episode, number 167, I'm joined with Todd Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin has been blowing up virally lately. I read his story through my Twitter feed about how a young man who's in his 20s crossed over into becoming a millionaire. And of course, I wanted to figure out how he was doing this, and he shared some of his secrets, literally being a secret shopper, having side hustles with properties, and how he built up his wealth. And my father used to always tell me, slow growth is for show growth, and he's done it right. So I can't wait until you listen to us, this, apply some of the principles for your own self. I hope you enjoyed this show. I would love to hear back. So without further ado, here is my man, Todd Baldwin. Hey, Todd, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to having you on. So, look, you know, I've read a lot about you. I think I, you know, I, I've shared that in email and I just mentioned it at the top of our introduction here. So, thank you again for joining. You have an inspiring story on a lot of different levels. The fact that you're as young as you are, and that's not to take anything away from you, but it's just to recognize the ability to grasp the, the new economy that we live in and thrive in it. You know, I read some really good stuff about you on CNBC. I think Black Enterprise picked it up and a lot of other magazines and different channels. So how did you kind of get into this idea of being self-employed, having your own separate hustle away from the standard nine to five? Sure, absolutely. Well, first, let me say thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm happy to meet you and work with you. And, you know, it really started my story. Unfortunately, it's not that unique. I come from a single parent household. I was raised by my mom. She raised three children by herself. And I saw her struggle on a daily basis, really just terrified of money. And I got my first job when I was 12 years old. I started learning to invest and make money online when I was about 15. And then, you know, at, at 19, I kind of really ramped things up before heading to college. By the time I was 25, I became a millionaire through real estate. So it's, it's really an accumulation of just, you know, seeing my mom struggle and knowing that I want a different life for my family. So how do you get aside from just seeing your mother struggle and then all of a sudden you're attracted to investing? How do you get from struggling to immediately knowing that investing is the answer at 15? I mean, I try to teach my kids about investing the Dow market, NASDAQ, and it just sounds like goobly gop to them. How, how did that <laughs> How did it, how were you attracted to it? So, you know, that's a really good question. And I think it's an important one because not a lot of people understand investing or understand passive income or anything like that. So 
When I was 12, I got my first job and it was shoveling horse manure for literally $3 an hour. So that's how I started working. It was my first job and I realized pretty quickly nobody gets rich doing that. And for me, I didn't have any business role models. I didn't even really know what an entrepreneur was. I didn't know what a professional investor was. When I thought of rich people, I thought of celebrities and you know professional athletes. So that's, that's what I thought rich people were. And not that professional athletes and celebrities aren't wealthy, but the people that make more than them are the business owners that you know own the sports team or own the studio. So anyway, I just started reading books about this idea of making money when you're not working. And that was completely foreign to me. I, I didn't even know that there are some people that, you know, make money literally while they sleep, but it's because they put businesses and systems in place. So mm. reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, The Richest Man in Babylon, The Art of War was actually a good one. It, it didn't teach exactly about personal finance, but just reading books about that really got me thinking, okay, well, I need to, first of all, be an entrepreneur. So at 15, I started a lawn care business where I was making at the time that I was doing that in my state, which is Washington state, minimum wage was, I believe, $8.60 an hour. And I was pulling in 15 bucks an hour. So almost double minimum wage just because I started my own business and I could, you know, work at my own hours and all that stuff. But then realizing that I'm just one guy and all I have is 24 hours in a day. And although I make $15 an hour, I can't work every hour. So what if instead I put systems in place or businesses in place, whatever you want, to basically pay me and make me money 24 hours a day? So that's what I started researching. And I, you know, I came across investing in stocks, securities that pay dividend. But really what I found, in my opinion, which was kind of like the greatest thing that I could ever think of was real estate. And I ended up buying my first house, I believe, at 23. That's amazing. Very impressive. Because in fact, those very books, Richest Man in Babylon, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, those are books that I read, you know, when I was about 20, 21 myself, or older mm -hmm. than you, of course. And um, the, the, the Richest Man in Babylon, oddly enough, it doesn't give you dollar for dollar. It's not, it's kind of an allegory about, you know, how we think about wealth in a sense, you know, how... You know, Correct. there's a path to a life of richness, if you will. And that was probably one of the most inspiring books to me. And then there's The Greatest Salesman in the World and all these other ones that follow up behind it or ahead of it, one or the other. So that's really, really interesting because I've also had my idea around real estate. And apparently you've put it into good practice. And I want to get into that a little bit, including some of the other stuff you do in terms of being a secret shopper and other stuff. But just taking one step back, because I think a lot of listeners on this podcast can identify with this. You originally kind of started off in retail arbitrage, right? Sort of eBay flipping and all that kind of stuff as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. I didn't even mention that yet on this podcast because that's something that I it's it's been so long since I've done it. But yeah, so I started flipping, you know, really finding things at, at Goodwill and selling them on eBay. I didn't even get into Amazon when that was, you know, going on, but yeah, my my greatest, I guess, accomplishment, if you will, was I found a broken pair of sunglasses on the sidewalk and I put them on eBay and they sold for like 60 bucks and I think this was when I was like 14. So 60 bucks, you know, is a lot of money. Yeah. 
And especially when it's like it's, it was literally broken sunglasses. And I I made sure everyone on eBay knew that the sunglasses were broken. <laughs> so, it you know, it wasn't like I was scamming anyone. They they were well aware the people will buy anything. But yeah, so later it went on to finding things at at Craigslist. Uh, another thing that I did in college was I bought a pool table for three hundred dollars. I used it for nine months in my college apartment. And then at the end of it, I sold it back on Craigslist for four hundred and seventy five dollars. So I made a pretty decent profit, you know, off of a toy that I had for fun. But yeah, I think there's a lot that can be said about the buying and selling of products, whether you get it at garage sales, Goodwill, or I mean, there's people right now making six figures by buying stuff at Walmart and then turning around and selling it on Amazon. It's a very interesting time. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely talked to a couple of people that have done really well, have built a million dollar business, millions of dollars of business. Ryan Grant was one of his names in, in uh, retail arbitrage. You know, one one of the things I wanted to talk about was, or ask you at least, is how overstated or understated is passive income? Because I remember very early on, there was this, as gig economy grew, there's like this hype around passive income and quit your job and go out and hustle and grind, no sleep team hashtag and all that stuff. Obviously, there's some truth to it, right? You can stitch together some side hustles mm-hmm. and do really well. But what's your philosophy around people that listen to you, you've made a decision on your own that, look, I'm not going to work for anybody else. I'm going to craft the life that I want. But somebody else isn't quite there yet. They work a nine to five, but they do want to attack that. How would you, I mean, where's your thought process and all that? Sure. So one thing that I will say that will not be popular is I wouldn't encourage anyone to quit their nine to five until their passive income can sustain their their living and their and their livelihood. I mean, I was in a very fortunate position where I, from a job, a W-2 job, I was making six figures by the time I was 22. So because of that, it was a lot easier for me to go out and buy real estate. And now my, my real estate makes, you know, way more than any nine to five job would, would pay me. But, you know, I didn't, you don't want to leave the job, in my opinion, until your bills can be paid with your passive income. So I think, you know, having, having multiple sources of income is really important. You mentioned earlier, which we can get into a little bit later on this podcast about secret shopping. So I, you know, I had a W2 job. I had secret shopping. I also have done focus groups where you basically just paid for market research. And then of course I had the real estate. I have the investing in stocks, collecting dividends. So for me, I'm not really a big fan of leaving a stream of income behind, you know, these people that want to just quit their job and I, I think there's a lot of hype around, you know, hey, look at me. Six months ago, I was working a dead end job just like you, but now I have a Ferrari and a mansion and, you know, all this stuff. And a lot of it, um, <laughs> frankly, is fake. There's so much stuff you can fake on the Internet. And, and the way you see people that are legit is before they have like, I don't know, I want to say most people between like one and ten million dollars of net worth don't actually have a Lamborghini quite yet. Like I, I don't have a Lamborghini. Right. I don't even want one. What I what I want is the Tesla Roadster, which I'll get. I'll get it in a few years. But you know, I, I think I think you're right. There's a lot of hype about passive income. Passive income is beautiful, but to to get it, it does take a lot of work up front. No, I agree with you hundred percent. And you know, I, I guess I'll name names because I'm just built like that and I've done it on past podcasts. But I watched a video that you did about Ty Lopez, for example, kind of taking advantage of this 
coronavirus economy that we're in, essentially, right, where people are losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're looking for other ways out. And that's kind of what I was Mm -hmm. alluding to on the passive income side. I think passive income, if people can do it and should do it in addition to their nine to five, and I agree with you a million percent, you should not be quitting your nine to five because if you're not making it with your nine to five, you're probably not going to do it without it. So I would build up, you know, my father used to tell me slow growth is for show growth. You know, at some Mm -hmm. respect, seeing these quote unquote gurus out here, right? Like maybe the Ty Lopez and the idea isn't to shit on him. I'm, I'm not trying to do that necessarily, but I am calling out that we've been driven into this anxiety, depression filled economy because people see your story where you're a millionaire, 27 years old, whatever it is, you're running Airbnbs, you have property, real estate, but they don't get the full perspective that, wait a minute, this guy had a six figure job. So he had a little bit of a head start here and you have to put your stuff mm-hmm. into perspective. So I wanted to pull it back a little bit and you, you kind of hit it right on the head that, hey, look, I, I kind of had a jump start. I had six figures. I had a plan ahead of me. I probably was a little bit early in reading books at 15 and getting investing. That's all fair, but I'd love for our audience to hear that so that they don't apply unnecessary pressure on themselves to create something that some of these other people on Instagram don't even really have, essentially. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, I can be as, you know, as open and transparent. Um, I, you know, I, I won't hold anything back. So the job that I started with was a sales job. And in, in my opinion, um, that's really a good way. If you want to make a lot of money, go into sales because if you're on the revenue side, there's really no cap to what you can earn rather than being on the expense side. Yep. And the difference is like, you know, if you're, and I'm not knocking any of these positions, but if you're, let's say like a secretary, you're going to be a cost to whatever business you work for. If you're a salesperson, you're going to make that company more money than you cost them. And as long as you're making the company more money, then whatever you're costing them, your income can keep going up and up and up so long as you make them more. So that's how I was able to make six figures at an early age. I think by the time I was 22, I was on track to make like 110,000 or so, something like that, which really helped. But yeah, going back, I did make a video about Ty Lopez. Let me just say a few things. I haven't met Ty Lopez personally. And I think in general, I won't say there's anything wrong with buying an information course if the information is real and it's valid, the problem is sifting through all the bullshit because there's so much of it out there and it's really easy. I think this is important for your listeners to hear. If I wanted to, and this would actually make me a ton of money, by the way, but I'd feel gross about doing it. But if I wanted to, I could go rent a Lamborghini right now and I could hire a few Instagram models and I could go rent a mansion on Airbnb And then I could post up with my camera and say, hey, this is the Lamborghini that I just bought this morning. This is the mansion that I live in. And oh, yeah, these five hot chicks, all of them are fighting for me. And, that you know, they (laughs) whatever I want to say. And I could tell them, I could say that audience, if you want to figure out the secret to my wealth, all you got to do is pay me twelve hundred bucks and I'll send you my course. Right. And the thing is, that happens and it's garbage. Like most of the money that these folks are making It's just by selling this dream. And unfortunately, most people who buy the courses don't make any money at all. I think the statistics on that, I think 3% of people that actually buy the course make any money. So 97% of the people buying these get rich courses 
they don't make any money from it. Mm. If that tells you anything, I mean, that's, wow. that's pretty severe. Wow. That is severe. That is a bad statistic right there or a good one, depending on how you, mm-hmm. you take it in. So you've, you know, the reason why we start off with some of the past of what you've done, you know, the idea is to lay a foundation and say, look, this, you know, this person in, in particular, you, Todd, you've been through it. You've seen it. You experienced it. You put some of your own money to work. Now you're in the throes of it. Something else that interested me about the CNBC article and other stuff that I read about you along the way was the fact that you, I don't know if you still do it, but at one point you were saving 80% of your income. Is that still true? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I save almost all of my income. So for anyone who you know hasn't seen the CNBC thing or people that are just tuning in, my wife and I, we live in a duplex. We live in one half and we, we rent out the other half. We also converted one of the garage spaces into a rentable unit that we had on Airbnb. And even in our half of the duplex, we live with a couple of roommates. So we're living completely for free. Plus, we share one car, which happens to be a 10-year-old Ford Focus. So we're saving almost all of our money. Um, now, it's easier to save 80% of your money when you have a high income. Because mm-hmm. if, you know, for the folks out there that only make 30 grand a year, there's really no way they can save 80% of that because you still have to live and, you know, pay rent and That's get right. food and all that stuff. But pretty much as we increase our income, we also increase the percentage that we save. And that's very different from most people. So most people, for example, they'll save, you know, 15% of their income. And, and that would be really good for most people, actually. That'd be phenomenal if people could get to saving 50% of their income. But they'll do that when they make 50 grand. And then they'll continue to save 15% of their income when they make 100 grand. Now to them, they're thinking like, oh, well, now I'm saving, you know, $15,000 a year instead of seven and a half thousand dollars a year. But the way my wife and I looked at it is like, well, if we could live on 50 grand, now we have an extra 50 grand, all of that can be saved and invested. So we avoid lifestyle inflation, at least for now. I mean, we're 27. We became millionaires at 25. Um, We don't have any kids yet. So there will be the time for the fun car. And, you know, the the big, beautiful mansion that we'll buy. I'm We're going to get all of that. But while we're young and in our 20s and just hustling, there's no need for that frivolous spending when we can put it to work for us. I like it. Very logical. I have a blog called Pathway to 60K. Act like you're broke and stack like you're rich. And me personally, we also decided to live on 60000 a year. I read an article from Ryan Broyles who played wide receiver for Detroit Lions. And I'm like, you know, I do. I make higher six figures. So I was like, we could live on 60,000 a year. And I went through my spreadsheet. That may not be applicable for everybody, but your point is well received that for wherever you are, even if you look at it from a percentage base, you can save something to start getting to that point. Because I know sometimes when you're a little higher up in the finance chain, it's like, oh, of course, he's a millionaire. And look at the property he has. Of course, you can live on that. I mean, you're probably living on interest alone and blah, blah, blah. But there are fragments in our living. Now, I personally wouldn't go as far as like a Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman. That's, uh, this is just me personally, by the way. I am not the guy like don't go out and buy $3 cup of coffee every day. You know, I tweeted last night, like I'm never listening to a financial guru again that tells me don't buy a $3 coffee. And then now that we're in the coronavirus thing, it's like go to your local coffee person and buy a $3 coffee every day. Right. But I think it's important that we all have a plan for our money because we tend to go in for raises from our jobs, but then we disrespect how the money goes out the house. We just want more in, but we don't respect how it goes out. Correct. So 
I think that's a very logical approach you have. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think both facets are important and it, it helps. I mean, I am very fortunate that I met the woman that I was going to marry when I was 19. I mean, we met in college first year and she has the same mentality that I do. She's actually an accountant, so she does all of our taxes for us. But we make a good team because I pretty much make sure we have more income coming in. And she works too, but I'm the driver of the income and she's really good about mm -hmm. saving money. So every year I make sure that we're making more and every year she makes sure that we're spending less. So it's a very, very like solid two punch combo, if you will. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I respect Dave Ramsey and everything he's done to help families get out of debt. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and he's, he's doing his thing and I, I commend him for that. And I actually am a fan of Dave Ramsey, but I don't follow all of his advice. Like I, you know, I, I yep. have a credit card that I, that I, I actually have a bunch of credit cards that I use. I don't have any debt on them, but I, I have them. And yeah, you know, I can enjoy the, I can enjoy things now and then, but this might be a good transition into the secret shopper thing because when I get coffee, I usually get it for free. And that's because I'm a secret shopper. And for anyone who doesn't know essentially what that is, there are a lot of companies out there that want to know how their employees are doing. So let's say Pete's Coffee, for example, that's one that I, I go to frequently. Pete's Coffee is a coffee company that has hired a mystery shopping firm to basically find independent contractors to go into their coffee shops, get the coffee, and then evaluate the service and then submit a report online. So basically, if you're going to go get coffee anyway, you might as well sign up to be a secret shopper. And there are ways to get that coffee reimbursed, plus make some money on the top. The last one I did at Pete's Coffee, I believe I spent $5 on my actual drink, but I got paid $11.50. So, you know, where Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey would say, you know, don't spend three bucks on coffee. I wasn't spending anything at all. I was actually making $6.50 profit mm. on a free cup of coffee. Right. So you got paid to go drink some coffee, basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So and I'll just in case it was confusing the way I said it, I was paid a flat rate of eleven dollars and fifty cents. I took five of that five of those dollars and I bought the coffee, the drink, whatever. So six dollars and fifty cents was left over in, in profit. Hey, guys, many of you know that I've started my own business in many different ways. I've started several different side hustles. And frankly, there's no real way to duplicate myself other than outsourcing my business. And along the way, I've found trials and tribulations of meeting different people using different platforms like Upwork, Fiverr, all these different systems that entrepreneurs and other people like myself tend to use. And I wrote a book about it. It's called The Beginner's Guide to Outsourcing Your Business. Find, hire, and build your team virtually today. As an entrepreneur, you cannot handle every business process yourself. In business, results matter. And your goal to produce the best results matter. How do you do this? You need a team. Read this virtual outsourcing book. It's on Amazon. Click the link in today's show notes. It's only $2.99. So click the link in the book description. Let me know that you ordered it today. Love to hear your feedback about it. And if you're looking to build out your team and expand your brand, outsourcing is the answer. Pick up the book, The Beginner's Guide to Outsourcing Your Business today. Now back to the show. Yep. So tell me from a, you know, for somebody that looks at this, because really my wife is the coupon clipper. That kind of person would be interested in downloading apps to get savings. 
she goes to Target and beeps everything she puts in the cart for her Target reward thing. Me, I tend to be because I think about time, right? And time yeah. is like my most valuable asset. I get into all of that stuff. And I, I just don't want to deal with like the apps and the filling it out like great time. How laborious is it for you to download these apps and actually write in this report, if you will, to do this secret shopping? It, or is it simple? Is it just one minute swipe of the button or something along those lines? So that's a really great question. And um, the answer is it varies. So I'll first talk about the apps. So there are many cashback apps. The one that I like the most is probably Dosh, which is just D-O-S-H. Anyone can download it. I like that one because it's completely passive. You don't have to fill out any surveys. You don't have to upload receipts. Dosh, you just link a credit card like you would link a credit card to the Uber app. And then anytime you swipe that credit card at one of their partner stores, you get cash back. So that one's completely passive. You download the app one time, input your credit card. It doesn't charge you anything. You're just inputting the credit card. So when you go use it at like IHOP or whatever, you get cash back. As far as the secret shopping goes, I started this in college where I, you know, I, I met my now she's my wife, but I met a girl. It took me about two months of savings just to take her out on a date because at the time I didn't really have any money. And I wanted to continue taking her out, but I couldn't afford it. So I literally just started Googling how to get free food. And I came across secret shopping. And I actually thought it was a scam at first, but they weren't asking for my social security number. They weren't asking for any money or bank account information. So I was like, okay, what the heck? I'll go do it. I'll, I'll sign up and I'll try it out. And then two weeks later, I got a check in the mail. So I was like, oh, there's something to this. But to answer your question, surveys vary anywhere from, you know, five to 15 minutes on average. And for me, it's like a treat, right? It's like a guilt-free date. So like I did one recently at a Mexican restaurant where we were paid 75 bucks to buy about 60 bucks worth of food. So we had, you know, a, a free dinner because we went during happy hour and then we made 15 bucks on the top. And that survey took me about 10 minutes. Now I agree with you. That's probably not worth my time anymore. But in college, when I first started out, it was very worth, my, you know, it was, it was worth my time for sure. Now it's like, you know, I'm making money with real estate and all these other things. I could literally be doing anything else and making more money, but I also enjoy going out. And this way it's kind of guilt free. You know, I'm getting paid to eat out. I will say this. The longest survey I have ever taken was two and a half hours, which is a crazy long time. But I was paid fifteen hundred dollars for that survey. Oh, wow. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. That's 750 bucks an hour for those of you doing the math out there. Basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are some surveys legitimately only take about 10 minutes. I mean, I, I work with a secret shopping company called Mercantile Systems. They have a contract with the Marriott Hotel Group. So Marriott is one of their clients. So whenever my wife and I travel, we try to stay in a Marriott and we try to line up a secret shop. And you literally you get reimbursed for your hotel stay. You get reimbursed for room service. You get valet parking for free. All your tips, you basically get reimbursed for any tips you give out. And the survey for that takes maybe 12 minutes. So it's like, you know, getting a free hotel stay on your vacation in exchange for 12 minutes of your time. I'll do that all day. Yeah, totally. So if, if I wanted to do something like that, how do I, how do I jump in into that? That in particular, like sure. the hotel stay and all that good stuff. So the hotel one specifically for Marriott, it's a company called Mercantile Systems. 
And if you just Google like mercantile system, secret shopping, it'll come right up. You just sign up to be a secret shopper and there'll be a tab on there. Once you're signed up called, gosh, it's like job board or shop log, one of those. And it will show all the available ones within your city. And then of course you can change the zip code. You can increase the radius. Like if you're traveling and you'll just see all the available shops and some of them will be Marriott. Some of them will be restaurants. And, you know, I, I found one where there was actually, and I live in Seattle, by the way, but I was looking at this because my wife and I were going to be going to Hawaii. And I was looking at, are there any Marriott secret shops in Hawaii? And I actually found some. Now, unfortunately, they weren't available the dates that we happened to be going. But next time, we'll probably just work around that. Because if we can, you know, go to some awesome hotel right on the beach in Hawaii and stay for free, I mean, that would be an awesome day. Mm, totally. And, and, you know, for those of you that sometimes look at things cynical like I do, those of you listening, you know, so being in the affiliate space, affiliate marketing, working with Lenovo, all that good stuff, I understand why companies would do this. If people listen, though, why, why would they do it if it wasn't some kind of scam at the end? Really, at the end of the day, they're looking for data. Data is the new oil, right? So Honey was just acquired by PayPal because PayPal wants the data. They don't want anything to do with the coupons per se. But now they have a lot of consumer data, survey data, for example, that Todd would fill out. That is very rich to them as they begin to build this portfolio up for however they slice and cluster and dice that data. So that's why they would do it. And then, of course, you as the consumer, you would do it because you're going to Pete's anyways. So what's what's the loss? And right. if anybody's like, well, I don't want people to have my my information. Look, it's all over. They have it already. Mm -hmm. If you're on Amazon, you do Prime, you do other stuff. You, you have Google in your home, Echo. It's over. They have it. It's too late for you to do this stand up, I believe. So that that's my thoughts around that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at, to your point, they have your data already, so you might as well get paid for it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I would I will actually say this because I think it's important. I wouldn't go out of my way to go, you know, buy coffee if that wasn't part of my daily routine. Mm. I might I might Good do point. it now for like a YouTube video when I'm showing someone or demonstrating because there, there's another secret shop that I do at Brown Bear Car Wash where I go get my car wash for free. But I don't go out of my way to do it. If my car needs a wash, if I'm going to be conveniently in the area, you know, I'll, I'll get my car washed and I'll get paid 15 bucks on the top in profit. But I'm not like driving 30 minutes to, you know, to go to this thing and, and to get a couple of bucks. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying if it's part of your daily routine to go to the movies mm. or to go to coffee or maybe you want to take your spouse out to eat once or twice a month, just make sure you're getting paid for it. And when you reach the point like you or I, where you don't even need the extra money and it's not worth the time, then you can, you know, have the luxury of not doing it. But for the folks that are like, just break down the hourly rate. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to go spend dinner, if you're going to go to dinner and it's going to take you 15 minutes to, to fill out a survey, but you're getting 60 bucks, just do the math. Is that hourly rate better than what you get at your job? If it is, then do it. If it's not, then maybe, you know, think twice because your time could be better spent elsewhere. Totally. Well put. Well put. I wanted to talk about the key driver behind a lot of your wealth. And that was real estate along with Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Can you share with the audience how that portfolio looks like? Maybe even, you know, how you started it and how you've multiplied it or built it up from there and how you break off Airbnb from those properties or where you stand today? Yes, absolutely. So I bought my first property when I was 23. 
my girlfriend at the time, we weren't even engaged. Um, we're married now, but we weren't even engaged at the time when we bought our first house. We bought it together. And this is going to probably make a little, make a lot of the people surprised or shocked. But what we did was we bought a house. It was a six bedroom, four bathroom house. We decided to take the master bedroom for ourselves and one of the bedrooms for uh, an office. And we rented out the other four bedrooms. So this was the first time my girlfriend at the time, this is the first time we lived together, basically. Uh, we had never lived together before this, and we had four roommates. So nobody really understood what we were doing. People thought like, oh, they must have bought a house that they couldn't afford, and now they have to have roommates. That wasn't the case at all. You were living for free. Exactly. Yeah, we were, our roommates paid our mortgage for us. I mean, literally, we were living completely for free in a brand new house that we owned. So mm -hmm. nine months later, we bought a second house. It was a six bedroom, three bathroom house. And I posted an ad advertising rooms for rent, individual rooms, not the entire house. And in a matter of like four or five days, all six bedrooms were rented. So we're like, oh, that, you mm -hmm. know, there's something to this. This could be a business for us. So then three months later, we bought our third house. Same deal where I advertised the rooms for rent. We actually moved into that house and bought it owner occupied. For anyone that doesn't know, you can actually pay less than 20% down usually if you buy owner-occupied. So we moved into that one. This time, we did not keep one of the bedrooms as an office. We decided to rent it out. And what that did was gave us an extra $850 per month, $850. So in this third house, we were living completely for free. Plus, we were making about $1,000 a month in profit just from that house we were living in. Plus, we still had the first two rentals. Now, this works really well because I'm in Seattle where housing is very, very expensive for a micro studio apartment that's like 300 square feet. You're looking at like 1800 bucks a month. So most wow. people would rather spend. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So most people would rather spend at least most young people. They'd rather spend, you know, eight or nine hundred bucks on a bedroom, assuming all utilities are included, which we have. We also have like a house Netflix account and a house Hulu account. I pay a maid. She comes to all the houses and cleans once per week. So it's a, you know, it's, they're getting value from it, but so now we're up to six houses and all of them are rented out by the bedroom. In the last one that we bought, we have, it's a duplex and we had the, we live in the bigger half with roommates and the smaller half was on Airbnb. And then we converted one of the garage units into a studio apartment with a kitchen and bathroom down there. That was on Airbnb as well. Because of COVID-19, we've actually had to take our Airbnb listings down so I've since leased them out full time to long term tenants. But as soon as those leases are over and this whole COVID mess is hopefully behind us, I plan on putting it back up on Airbnb because it's so lucrative. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Thank you for answering that in terms of how did COVID impact Airbnb? And you just spoke to that. So before COVID, when those other rooms would become, you know, unavailable or the lease came up, whatever the case is, what would you do? You just put it up on Airbnb in the meantime until you got a long-term leaser? Or how would you work that? So I am very, very aggressive with my marketing strategy. And out of all, I think we have like 33 or 34 rooms now. And we have never once missed a month's rent on any room across any house. Hmm. So we basically what I do is Everyone's on a lease. I don't do month to month. And I find out pretty well in advance of that lease expiring if that tenant will be moving out or not. And if they are moving out, 
then I set up showings um, with the tenant's permission, of course. But usually if I have somebody move out, you know, let's say um, April 30th, I'm getting somebody else in there May 1st. And I've been able to do that every single time. And we bought our first house um, mid-December of 2015. So in almost five years with 33 rooms, I've never missed a month's rent. I've never even missed a day's rent. We have our Airbnb units that are specifically for Airbnb. But as far as the individual bedrooms, I've always had that leased out full, full time to a longer term tenant. That's amazing. So you mentioned you're aggressive on marketing. What do you do that's a little bit more aggressive than you've seen out there? Sure. So the first thing is I post everywhere. So my houses with rooms for rent, I have ads on Craigslist. I have ads on Facebook Marketplace. I've also joined housing groups on Facebook. So like, let's say you live in Houston, Texas. There's probably like a Facebook group for housing and room rentals and apartments in Houston, Texas. So sign up for that. I did that, the, you know, the one for Seattle. And I have an app called Roomy, which is basically like, this is going to be funny. It's basically like Tinder, but for roommates, where if, you, if you're swiping through and you see a roommate that you think you would like to live with, you, you know, you swipe to match with them. And if, if they match with you, you can start talking about a house for rent. Why does this not surprise me, man? <laughs> There's like an I app know, for it. It's wild. Well, and you know what's funny? So I was the biggest user of this app called Roomy because I have so many houses and I was on there all the time. And the CEO of Roomy reached out to me. He's like, hey, you're one of our biggest users. Let's chat. So we met up for lunch. We realized that we actually went to college together and never met on campus. Wow. So it was crazy because like, man, I wonder if we met like seven years ago, or I guess I haven't been out of college that long. I, I got out of college in 2014. You could have scaled together. Yeah, we could have done something together. Um, so that was a wild moment. And then there's another app called uh, RentHoop. So, you know, it was a, it was just a fun experience. But a, another thing that I do that's differently is I have a calendar update, uh, a reminder set 60 days in advance of when a, a lease is going to expire. Mm. So when I get that calendar update, I reach out to the tenant and I say, hey, you know, your lease is coming up in a, in a couple of months. Let me know if you'd like to re-sign or if you're planning on moving out. Now, legally, they only have to give me 20 days notice, and that, that's fine. But what I do is if somebody's moving out in two months, usually they know. And so most of the time when I send that message, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm moving out. You know, thank you. Um, and, you know, where do we go from here? But they tell me that 60 days in advance. So I have two months as opposed to 20 days to find a replacement tenant for them. And then, of course, if they decide to resign, I just send them the lease right then. So I'm getting the new lease re-upped two months in advance. So that's how we're able to keep it. We've never lost a month's rent. I've literally, I literally had somebody move out in the morning. And then I go send the cleaners through, paint the room, get it all ready. And somebody new move in the same afternoon. Wow. Wow. That's very impressive, though. Very impressive. Thank you. So what, you know, if you had to give me a breakdown and if it's, this is too much to ask, feel free to say priest. Now you're just looking in my pockets here, but what, <laughs> what would be a percentage breakout of where you're putting, and I, I'm going to share the reason why I'm asking based on today's economy, but where do you have most of your wealth? Is it 60, 40 real estate versus investments, stocks, et cetera, or how, how is that breakout for you today? It's very, very heavily in real estate. Okay. All right. So my guess. Almost all of it is in real estate. Okay. 80 to 90% in real estate. Let's just say that to be fair. Yes. Maybe, maybe even more. But how has 
today's economy, which I I think we're going to come out and face America 2.0, whatever that means. I mean, could be for the better. I think it will be. I can share the reason why, but I won't get into it. But how has that changed how you do business? Will it or does it? Or is it like priests? I'm all rented out. People are snuggled in their homes. I'm good. I'm staying pat for now. And then I'll go out into the buyer's market. Like, how are you adjusting towards this new economy today? Sure. So it is a very interesting time we're living in. And my heart goes out to anyone who has been affected by this virus, you know, whether it's by financially or they know someone close to them who's passed away from it. My world really hasn't changed except for having to take my Airbnbs offline, but I just lease them out full time anyway. As far as my normal real estate, the room rentals, all of that has been great, actually. I know a lot of landlords were worried about on Instagram, there's hashtag cancel rent and there's all these things on there. Mm -hmm. I received every penny of rent for April. Now, part of that is, I don't know if we're connected on Facebook, but every day on Facebook, I'm posting updates about the stimulus check, mm. about how to apply for unemployment, mm -hmm. you know, when the check's becoming, how to get the extra 600 per week. All of my tenants see that. So basically, I do have tenants who have been laid off, by the way, or lost hours. So I am helping them. I, I help people file for unemployment and, you know, submit their weekly claims. And I've also said that if they need to pay with a credit card, if they don't have the cash, that I'll, I'll take the hit on the 3% transaction fee. But no one's even done that. W really, what has come down to, and this may be controversial, you may like this, you may not like it. Most of my tenants that have been laid off are actually going to make more money on unemployment, at least for the first four months, because there's an extra $600 a week yep. on top of their normal unemployment. Yep. So I have a tenant right now. She makes, well, she made about 36 grand a year. She was laid off. Her unemployment is 400 per week, but she's getting an extra 600 per week. So she's making a grand a week right now on unemployment. So for her, she got a 50% raise and doesn't have to work. Now, I'm not going to get into the, to the politics and whether I think that's good or bad. It, it is what it mm -hmm. is. But for me, that means I'm missing no rent. So I, I feel very, very blessed because I make a lot of money in real estate. And if I made the same amount of money, but it was because I owned like a bar, I would be screwed because bars are closed. So, uh, you know, I can't be arrogant and, you know, beat my chest and say I'm amazing. Some luck is involved here with the business that I decided. But when I got into business, when I figured out what's something that people will always, always need, what I came back to was clothing, food and shelter. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm not a farmer, so I don't think I can do anything with food. And I have no talents when it comes to making clothes, but I could buy real estate that people live in and people will stop taking vacations. People might stop going to the movies. People may stop, you know, eating at fancy restaurants, but they have to live somewhere. And so I decided that's what I was going to invest in. And it's paid dividends. Do you think that is still the way to build or the best way I should ask real estate? This is still the best way to build wealth in America today. In my opinion, I would say so, yes. I mean, you can, and again, Dave Ramsey fans will cringe at this, but the fact that you can borrow money at, you know, three or 4% over a 30 year term is, it's amazing. And, and Warren Buffett, you know, arguably the greatest investor of our time would agree with me on that one. I don't know of anything else where you can basically say, hey, Mr. Bank, I would like a loan of $500,000 
and then you get other people to pay the loan for you. I mean, that's really what you're doing when you're buying real estate is, you, you know, you put money down, you get this big loan, you get tenants in there, they pay off the loan for you, plus some cash flow on the side. And then by the time the loan's paid off, the house is worth a, a hell of a lot more than what you paid for it. I mean, we had, I've just been doing this for four or five years, and I've already realized about half a million dollars in appreciation. That's just from the houses going up in value. Plus, in total, we collect about $460,000 per year in rental income. About one hundred and fifty grand of that is pure profit after the mortgages is paid, the, you know, the interest, taxes, insurance, maintenance, and utilities. About one hundred and fifty k is what I pocket. But also, the houses are going up in value and we're building equity. So yes, there's a lot of benefits to real estate. Depreciation is another thing where you, know, you can basically say on paper for tax purposes, it's all legal, by the way, that your house is going down in value because of the wear and tear. That's depreciation. But it's also going up in value because you know, it's, it's an investment. And over time, it'll, it'll increase the value. I know of no other investment, so you can school me if I'm missing something here, that you can say legally is going down in value when it's actually going up in value. And the reason you say it's going down in value is for tax purposes. It's, it's, it helps create a loss. So for us and our small operation, the first like $220,000 that we make is completely tax-free. And that is because of depreciation and because you can write off the interest, which our tenants, or our tenants pay for us anyway. Yeah. No, I, I think the way you're doing it, Todd, is 100% right. The reason why I wanted to do this podcast was because I think you have a very logical approach to it. I think you did it right from buying the rooms, living in it. I totally got it right away. I know some people are like, what a weirdo, but it's no different than living anywhere else. And there's a common area in terms of living room and kitchen, et cetera. And then you're renting out rooms. It totally made sense to me, particularly where you live at. I mean, you mentioned a $500,000 home loan and I'm like, wait a minute, dude, I live in North Carolina, 350, you're balling down here in North Carolina. So, <laughs> so but I did write a Medium article for full transparency about now this is not talking to someone like you that did it your way. This is someone that is literally not looking at 401k, even having a couple percent or even leveraging their 401k, I should say, or even having percents in stock and just totally putting everything into a home and thinking that anybody that rents is a loser. And I'm like, you know, if you knew about amortization schedules and how interest pings you in the first 15 years or whatever it is and other kind of good factors to put in there, I wouldn't necessarily put all my eggs in one basket, that being real estate, that is. So that would be my only debate to real estate. But I still think real estate absolutely is a generator of wealth, has created millionaires, whether it's on paper or even liquid, if you're selling and creating passive like Airbnb or something along those lines, I, I think there's tons of value to it for sure. And I think you've done it right personally and leveraged it exactly the way it should be. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I agree with you. I would never say put all, you know, 100% of your eggs in one basket. We actually use real estate to fund other investments. So, you know, we max out two 401ks, we max out two IRAs, we have a liquid brokerage account. And basically, just with real estate, not including any other form of income that we have, after living completely for free with our, you know, house payment, utilities, et cetera, we make an extra $150,000 $150, per year in passive income from real estate, which of course, we can just put all of that. I mean, we still have other income, so we can put all of that 
you know, into our other funds, whether it's the stock market or back to another property or what have you. So it's been a huge blessing for us. Yeah, that's really cool. Again, you've done it right, man. You're you're somebody that, again, I, I dug into a little bit. I'm really impressed to see what you've done just in general. I'm going to link up on the podcast page, the CNBC article, so people can catch that. But also, as we wrap up here, I noticed that at least, you know, it seemed like you started picking up more steam on your YouTube channel with different, you know, YouTube thoughts. And, you know, we brought up the Ty Lopez, but you have some other things on there as well. You even talk about secret shopping on one of them. Feel free to share, you know, are, are you trying to build up on YouTube now? What, what are some other avenues that people can start checking you out and looking into your information? Yeah. So, you know, when I was younger, I felt it was my purpose in life and my calling to basically help solve this poverty problem that we have mm. through teaching financial literacy. Mm -hmm. And the platform that I felt that I could do and showcase at the best would be through YouTube. So I started a YouTube channel. The motivation behind that is really just to teach people about investing, about saving and secret shopping and, you know, multiple streams of income and how to build passive income and to do it in a way that isn't the gross financial guru way. I'm very real with everyone that I talk to on my YouTube channel. Like I live with roommates, right? I live with three roommates and yes, I'm a millionaire, but I drive my wife and I share one car. It's not a cool one. And um, I'm just kind of hoping to filter out all the bullshit and just give people what they really need. Mm -hmm. So the YouTube channel is just my name. It's just Todd Baldwin. I've also started to post a little bit more on my Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I just I want to help people. And this is the way that I know how is to teach them financial literacy. And, you know, the listeners on your podcast probably already get it. They, you know, they're they're already listening to you. So, of course, they want to, you know, they, they want to better themselves and they want to increase. But it is a little disheartening to see that a lot of people just don't care, man. And like, and this is not, I'm not like mad because people aren't watching my videos or, you know, or, or I'm not like sour grapes or anything, but like people want to be entertained much more than they want to be informed. And I think that's a really big factor of wealth inequality. And, you know, we can, we can agree or disagree on our opinions on that. But I think that people getting the information and then doing something with that information is a huge step. Um, regardless of politics and everything else. So that's my motivation is to get people the information that they need so they can start to apply that in their own lives. No, I agree with you 100%. I mean, you could go out there and look at, you know, people can do simple searches. It's still amazing the questions that people ask, like, hey, what does GDP mean? And it's like, dude, you can go anywhere in Google and YouTube it and they get, they get really dumb. But if they want to figure out what Car Cardi B said they they know exactly how to get there. Well, you can get there the exact same way to find out about. But I think it it's hard to sometimes when they see a ticker tape scrolling across the TV, they see a 52 week high and low or no, you start spewing out numbers and percentages. People get very tensed up about that. And they I think, you know, when you have a YouTube channel that talks about finances, they hear what they don't have versus what you're trying to get to them. So that's a much different mindset. Yeah. But I think you have great stuff on the YouTube channel. I think people need to check it out. I'll be linking it up on the, the episode page here too. So Todd, man, look, you have some really good stuff out there, dude. And I'm really rooting for you. I mean, again, I'm impressed by, you know, everything that you're building up, stuff you're playing with, all including down to the secret shopper stuff, your willingness to kind of jump in there in the midst of having 
all the capital you have. And I think that's a message to all of us that no matter where you think you are, you still can do a little bit more to push it. And it doesn't have to be hashtag no sleep team and all the extra bullshit. So that's really good stuff. Right. Well, thank you. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well-deserved. So if, you know, if somebody wanted to reach out to you or something along those lines, should they just kind of connect with you on Facebook? I'm not on Facebook personally, but what's, what's the best way to kind of, you know, maybe give you feedback or say, Hey, thumbs up. I love what you're doing. Is it on your YouTube channel? Is it Instagram? Where, where can they connect with you at? Yeah. So YouTube is a really good one. It's just my name, Todd Baldwin. I'm also on Instagram at Todd J Baldwin. And then my Facebook is just Todd Baldwin as well. Most people probably DM me right on Instagram or they, um, they message me through YouTube. So either one of those platforms is fine. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Todd, for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, such rich information. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Priest. It was a pleasure being on the show. Hey, guys, hope you got something out of that episode. I know for sure that I did. I'm always inspired by listening to other people's stories about how they gain wealth or maybe what they're after, because wealthy is a state of mind. It doesn't always mean money in the account. I mean, somebody could have a million, for example, and be just as happy as someone who has 50,000. And money is a tool at the end of the day. So the goal isn't for us to glorify these people because they have more money over one person. It's just to recognize that there is something about striving for more to either help others, help yourself, create a legacy, so forth and so on. At least that's what I'm doing it for. So please let me know what your feedback is about the show, about this show, past shows you may have listened to. Of course, you can reach to me directly and I'll I'll try to get to everybody that I can. I, I'm thankful for all the emails that we get and the questions we get about shows and can people be on? Of course, we want to interview the world, but it's it's quite impossible, as you can imagine. Email me at priest, P-R-I-E-S-T at insidethemarketplace.com. Otherwise, check us out wherever they're playing a podcast, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, wherever there's a podcast, check us out. Until next time, when we have another great guest, I'll see you next Sunday. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious.